Hello and welcome to the arbitration station. Is that the main issue of ISDS today? So we cannot invite Joel to the next episode. You're the native speaker. It can't be very unique. Unique means one of a kind. It's either unique or it's not. It's like you're, you're either <laughs> pregnant or you're not. Did you say Gayard? Mm-hmm. Yeah, with a D. I should not pronounce the D. I'm getting DCF tattooed on my neck tomorrow, actually. It's a question I'm putting up there. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the Arbitration Station. My name is Brian Kotick. I'm Ewan Dahlqvist. And this is Sadia Patti. And we are your co-hosts for yet another episode of the Arbitration Station podcast covering both commercial and investment arbitration, 66% serious substance, and 33% general pondings and musings of the arbitration world, and 1% friendship, because we're in the same room for the first time. Yes, we are. Check out our picture. We're so happy to be together. <laughs> yes. This is where I'm supposed to ask, where in the world are you, Brian? But that's kind of a moot point now. I know. It's a, but you're now you're in London, in Storm Dennis. Is that what it's called? Storm Dennis? Yeah, I think that's Yeah, my is. arrival was actually delayed because of Storm Dennis. It's been crazy. It's been flooding all over the UK. Mm-hmm. But now you're here. Yeah, and up here on the 459th floor of Sadia's office, <laughs> the flooding is not a problem. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so how are you liking it? It's not my first time around. Right. Uh, I like it a lot, actually. I always do. Uh, the arbitrator I used to work for in Sweden always said that he went to London because the air is different. Not the actual air, but like the, the air of the legal profession is different and you can breathe a bit more freely. And I think there's something to that, actually. Ah. Interesting. <laughs> compared to New York. Yeah, I think in his case compared to Sweden. Oh, right. Uh, but yeah, probably, yeah. So uh, arbitration chambers that I work for, their offices are down like, in Temple with a lot of barristers and courtyards and fountains and brick buildings and stuff. It's it's not midtown Manhattan. It's a very different air and <laughs> yes. you can like, think undisturbed. It's also very different from the city. Yes. The feel of it is completely different, right, from here? Yeah. You see the divide between solicitor and barrister. <laughs> Does that mean I pick the side now? That you I'm have. Barrister side? Yeah, that's, barrister. Because that's not the purpose or the intention. Right. <laughs> and as the as picking the barrister side, um, we should probably give a small comment, maybe later uh, at the end of this segment, on what we said at our last episode. Ah, I don't think so. You mean when you defended France? I did not violently, defend France. Passionately. Yeah. <laughs> Let's just say that we had a little bit of comments from English practitioners saying they were not more expensive than French people. <laughs> so, you know what? Let the them fight. Continues. Let them fight. Let them fight about this and compare invoices on, you know, online or offline. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> well, if you want to go to France and check it out, then you can go to the ICC Arbitration Conference, uh, which is the beginning of Paris Arbitration Week. Um, that takes place on the 30th of March 2020, followed by the training on the 1st of April 2020. As we've said on other episodes, you can uh, use the code ARB-10, that's A-R-B-10, <clears throat> to get a 10% discount off the, <coughs> excuse me, off the, uh, you can get, <clears throat> I'll start that over for Jan. You can use the offer code ARB10ARB10 to get a 10% discount on all of the rates. The early bird uh, phase has passed, but you can get it off the normal rates. Um, The program and the speakers are already live online, so check that out at iccwbo.org slash iccconference. 
and you can um, see what the program has to offer. They have Eurovision a year in review, which is something that they typically do, um, followed by tariff wars and supply chains. Is there a dispute in the making? Um, and then another panel on the European Green Deal and climate law, what is the impact on dispute resolution? And then they have some closing remarks, um, followed by the Paris Arbitration Week cocktail, uh, which is always quite fun and massive. Um, the Paris arbitration community really descends, and I guess the London arbitration community as well. Is there still like a yacht thing? There's usually a yacht. This like, one like is young. No, this no? one's okay. inside, but I think there is one during the week oh, okay. that you can you can go on a yacht in the cold March. <laughs> Everybody's <laughs> indoors. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, yeah. And uh, I think it's a good time also to mention again that we are very lucky to have Investment Arbitration Reporter as our sponsor for season four. Uh, IA Reporter is an online service focused on international investment law. IA Reporter's team of expert analysts offer up-to-the-minute coverage of new arbitrations, recent decisions, and notable policy developments. Last year, IA Reporter launched a new content feature, a series of case profiles on more than 1,300 invested state arbitrations, including easily searchable data on arbitrators, counsel, and key developments in each case. To find out why the world's leading law firms, universities, and government agencies subscribe to IA Reporter, visit IAReporter.com. Yay. Yes. <laughs> but today, we're doing a little bit of investment arbitration. We always do a little bit of yeah. investment arbitration. But we're also doing something that is more of a, a cross-cutting topic. First, we're talking about confidentiality and transparency prompted by a recent exit case, which we'll get back to RAND Investments and SEMBI Investments versus Serbia, then we are indirectly moving on. We, we are directly moving on <laughs> into indirectly talking about the recent health scares in some parts of the world, right? The coronavirus, yes, exactly. And as I'm sure everyone is aware, it has an impact not only on the health of a lot of people, uh, but also on a lot of contracts and execution of contracts. And hence, the arbitration community will be uh, interested in hearing, I think, um, to what extent it has an impact on those contracts, the performance, and the notion of force majeure. So we'll talk about that. Um, but before talking about that, we might, it is difficult to not talk about the big news of the day. Yes. Right? Yeah. As we record this very long in advance of when this will be published, <laughs> usually yes. in advance, today the appeals court in The Hague reinstated the three UCOS majority shareholders awards, famously worth 50 plus billion dollars when they were issued presumably yeah. 60 plus today mm -hmm. given interest. Right. Mm -hmm which has, of course, kicked start a lot of discussions in the arbitration community. I don't know, how's your uh, Dutch? Have you been able to read it in its original language yet? <laughs> <laughs> no, definitely not. I just got some. Uh, my Google Translate is helping me, but I haven't gone very far, no. I think maybe even when this is published, this, this uh, episode, maybe it will, it will be out. I don't know if the court will provide one. I think they have, at some point in the past, if not, there are uh, gazillion enforcement proceedings in various jurisdictions, including the United States, where they have to plead in English and the, the documents become public. So maybe one of the parties, presumably the one who now has an award that is enforceable, will try to uh, 
submit the court judgment as part of enforcement efforts. I know there are a lot of associates at law firms right now uh, working on reinstating the enforcement proceedings that are ongoing in so many places. Mm -hmm. So many. And others are thinking about how they can probably suspend those enforcement proceedings again. Yeah. Right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's a waking a lion for sure. Yes. And I think a lot of work for different people, right? I feel like a lot of different firms and different... Yeah, I mean, you need local counsel in the yeah. enforcement proceedings. And in the, the set-aside, there are both uh, international and, and uh, more domestically focused lawyers involved on both sides, I think. But on the investor side, it's been Sherman and Sterling for a long time uh, in various parts, I think. So it, it seems from the outside that they are sort of the, the lead counsel coordinating all of this. I don't know if that is true, but that's my impression mm -hmm. that they are sort of involved in all of these efforts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They will be running it maybe from the, the main office. And I think for the future, once if there's an English translation, we should probably get back to this very interesting question about the secretary's role. I just Google translate that section and it seemed like an interesting finding. Obviously, the, the court didn't find that this fourth arbitrator argument was sufficient to, to set aside the, the award. Uh, but we don't know until we read the reasoning, and I think yeah. we can expect the Dutch Supreme Court, or whatever it's called, the uh, Hagerad. Dutch Supreme Court. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We should just yeah. have a Dutch speaker on call, because this is a recurring feature that we screw up with. <laughs> yeah. Dutch people. Yeah, no, yeah. definitely not going to happen. <laughs> but we had a similar case when we were representing... Uh, the Mikulas, because they had so many enforcement proceedings happening. But we weren't necessarily, because we had the, pending ar the arbitration pending at the time, that we weren't really involved in all the enforcement proceedings, because they owe, they are very particular to that enforcement jurisdiction. So, yeah, as much as Sherman and Sterling is involved, I don't know how much they're going to be involved in like the minutiae of each no, case. No, you're probably not. I, I am just riffing. I yeah, have yeah, no yeah. idea if this is true. This is just my impression from the outside. So I, I'm very aware that... They're still might. drinking champagne right now. Guys. Oh, no. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and hiring, probably. Yes. <laughs> Speaking of drinking champagne... Brian, you've checked out of the substantive segments entirely, and you were like the happy fun oh, time yeah. master oh, now. Yeah, Several episodes in a row, it's been your <laughs> job start to doing do. some work, huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the happy fun time, this segment will be to open plan or not to open plan. That is the question. Um, there was a big push, I think, about five years ago to have everyone sitting in open plan, and a lot of firms got new office spaces and transformed old office spaces to get open plan, and not everyone's happy. I've never worked in open plan. I now share an office, and that was yeah. startling enough. So <laughs> we'll get into our views on whether open plan is helpful for the efficiency of our profession or whether it is a disaster in the waiting. So interesting. I look forward to this. But first, we're going to, to Serbia. Well, we're not in Serbia technically, uh, it, because it's an exit case that we were talking about, but it's against Serbia and uh, has significant connections, obviously, to Serbia. We have, in the past, of course, covered transparency issues on this podcast. I think it's episode eight, for those keeping score, when we talked about amicus amici, and we turned that into a more general discussion about transparency and investment arbitration. Mm -hmm. So we won't necessarily revisit the, the basics, but I think this case highlights a few things and it may become a well-known case. 
known for opening the transparency floodgate. or it may be read as too fact-specific to mean much beyond this individual case, but we will see, and I think it might be the former because it is interesting in that it contains both a well-drafted majority decision and a well-drafted dissenting opinion. Mm. Mm-hmm. And it's a procedural order, I should say. It's not a, an award or a decision, it's a procedural point with a dissenting opinion. So just to give the basics, Rand Investments and Sambi Investments versus Serbia, it's an exit case, and recently a majority of the tribunal ordered the public disclosure of case documents. The case was brought by five, I think, claimant investors under the Canada-Serbia BIT, while one claimant investor brought its claim under the Cyprus-Serbia BIT. So this is a crucial point to keep in mind because the Canada-Serbia BIT contains provisions requiring the arbitration to be conducted in a transparent manner through the disclosure of case documents and conducting of public hearings, etc. However, the Cyprus-Serbia BIT that one claimant relied on does not contain anything by way of transparency. And the claimants, all of them, sought for the entire proceedings to be conducted in a transparent manner in line with this Canada-Serbia BIT with the publication of all case documents in the dispute, including those relating to the sixth claimant under the Cyprus-Serbia BIT. And the respondent, Serbia, opposed the claimant's application for public disclosure, arguing that the provisions from the Canada-Serbia BIT could not be applied to matters governed by the Cyprus-Serbia BIT. And now we're in business. <laughs> because the key question is this. Uh, when the, the bit and the applicable rules, in this case the exit convention, are silent on this specific question, does the tribunal have the power to order disclosure record anyway? And the majority said that these are matters of procedure. And let me quote the majority here. Matters of procedure are within the powers of the tribunal, pursuant to Article 44 of the Exit Convention. Editorial sidebar, this is the case under most arbitration rules. Going back. And there is no doubt that issues of transparency and confidentiality are matters of procedure. The tribunal, therefore, has the power, blah, 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 to order this. However, as I said initially, there was a dissenting opinion by Professor Marcelo Cohen. And here we may stop and catch our breath because Professor Cohen has been in the news lately after he became the first arbitrator to find that there is no jurisdiction under intra-EU bits anymore. Mm-hmm. And this was in Theodorus Adamakopoulos and others versus <laughs> Cyprus. Well <laughs> or, or, or as I call it, a Greek investor versus Cyprus. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is off topic today, but iReporter has a great analysis of this dissenting opinion and I think it's also publicly available. Uh, which sort of created a new strand in this uh, Acmea debate that we're all tired of. Mm-hmm. The point is that Professor Cohen is no stranger to the dissenting opinion. Mm-hmm. And similar to certain other arbitrators that shall remain unnamed, he also has a record of state appointments. Mm-hmm. And there are more dissenting opinions going back in his uh, record. So we might see him come back as a, as a favored appointee without saying too much. Anywho, back to Rand Investments versus Serbia. Professor Cohen did not agree with the majority, 
and since we're naming names, it was Gabriel Kaufman Kohler and Baju Vasani in the majority. And I have a history of enjoying reading out dissenting opinions verbatim on this podcast. I thought I might do that again. Yes, mm. please. Professor Cohen writes, I strongly disagree. Confidentiality and transparency are not matters of procedure for which Article 44 of the Exit Convention would be applicable, thus leaving the tribunal with the entire freedom to decide in case nothing is mentioned in the Convention, the rules, the applicable bit, or in case there is no agreement between the parties. In my view, matters of procedure concern pleadings, evidence, time limits, form of decisions, but not the confidentiality or the transparency of the procedure itself. Obviously, the majority opinion prevailed, so they found that they had the power to do this, and after establishing that, they went on with the next separate question, which is whether they should use this power and whether they should order the disclosure, which we know that they ended up doing. Uh, and the majority did so referring to procedural economy and the tribunal's general duty to conduct this arbitration in an efficient manner in terms of time and cost. But they also mentioned the fact here, which is key, I think, uh, because it kind of limits the ruling uh, that most claimants were already under a transparency regime because five out of six uh, got their jurisdiction from a BIT that expressly provided for transparency, mm -hmm. which made it, of course, more procedurally efficient to include the sixth claimant under that too. So I don't think we should read this as a general statement that it's always appropriate to use this power uh, in a different factual circumstance. Then they added, the majority, that their conclusion is further corroborated by the strong trend in favor of transparency in investor-state dispute settlement, which trend is, for instance, manifest in the uncentral transparency rules. So they sort of anchored their analysis in the general trend that we now generally want more transparency in investment arbitration. In response to this, dissenting arbitrator Cohen had a long response that I won't read out, but essentially he writes that efficiency is subsidiary to state consent. He writes that uh, it has been the claimant's, plural, choice to initiate a single proceeding under two different BITs. The parties have made their choice. It is for the parties to undergo the actual or potential consequences of this choice. So he had issues with the majority assuming that Serbia had consented in both instruments, basically, to, to uh, transparency. You know, that was his argument, that we are reading in consent where there is none in the interest of procedural efficiency. The majority then proposed uh, certain rules for determining the manner in which these proceedings would be conducted transparently, and they were based on the uncentral transparency rules, although they weren't directly applicable because it's an exit case, but that's of course possible. After this decision to allow the disclosure of the record, Serbia argued in a separate motion that certain documents uh, in relation to the claims under the Cyprus Serbia BIT were confidential and should thus have been redacted or should be redacted going forward. And there is a new procedural order where again the majority of the tribunal rejected Serbia's argument, finding that the state had not established a confidentiality. And we see a new round of majority versus dissenter arguments in this procedural order. Um, and the majority, we should mention here, actually referenced other cases that have come to the same conclusion uh, in situations when there are two treaties with different transparency regimes. And that case is Eurogas versus Slovakia, 
which, by the way, involved a much more specific transparency questions, i.e. whether or not you must disclose the identity of a third-party funder. Mm-hmm. And there have been more such cases after Eurogas when, when the tribunal actually found that you should disclose the identity. But what do we think of the core question here? Is transparency a matter of procedure? And if the parties, i.e. the states, have not agreed to confidentiality, is it in the power of the tribunal to order it? I'll take the second question first, and I because it's a bit easier. And I, I would actually agree with the dissenter in that in that situation, in the sense that if you have if you do not have an agreement to have transparency, you cannot refer to a general trend to force someone to release documents. I think it's it's different than a pr- any other procedural order where you're deciding under Article Forty Four when you're saying basically we want to move these proceedings in a certain way, and like I get to determine the rules in which this proceeding will take place like video conference or phone conference yeah 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 or or you know you get an extension i mean these are the types of things or you know staying in the proceedings that falls under article 44 because you're talking about the actual running of the case but if you're talking about a state which has objected and does not have a basis in the agreement to release documents to then force them it's basically an interim measure. It's you know an interim measure question, but and then you don't even have the basis under an interim measure like you know test to say that they needed to release these types of documents. So I think it's really a going against party autonomy and b, you know, exceeding their mandate in a in a sense. So wait, are we saying then then there's an implied duty then on confidentiality? Is no, that- and we know that there isn't. Mm-hmm. No, that's I think that's a key question actually. Like unless if if nothing is agreed, what is the default position? Yeah. Right. If that, that you can't, well, if you don't do anything about it, what is the starting point? And I think in some domestic jurisdictions, I know in Sweden, for example, because this was brought up in a Supreme Court case related mm-hmm. to arbitration. If the parties do not provide for confidentiality in the arbitration agreement, the default starting point in Swedish arbitration law is that it's actually public. Mm-hmm. Right. But that's different. It's the same in Australia and some other places. But yeah. generally, it's not. This isn't the do- domestically anchored case. This is the exit case yeah. or an, an exit case. And I think you might be right. And I think I might also have some sympathy for the dissenting opinion here that the default because it states it states sovereignty they mm-hmm. cede certain parts of the sovereignty when they sign treaties we cannot assume that something that is not in the treaty and nor anywhere else there's no like customary international law norm that arbitrations must be transparent yeah it's, right. it's kind of a stretch to read in that in a state consent when there is so would you say that this applies more in the context of investment treaty or is it just because it's more it, it states particularly but let's mm-hmm. I mean let's let's extend it to a commercial context. Yeah. Where under a contract you have a multi party arbitration yeah. in one contract between one of the claimants and the respondent, they have some sort of confidentiality provision mm-hmm. and the other one that they don't. Mm-hmm. Would you then say that these the party that does not have the confidentiality provision in their contract is now impliedly agreeing to use the confidentiality provision in the other contract just because they've initiated proceedings? That I mean Maybe that's an argument. The fact that they've agreed to a multi-party arbitration means that they're availing themselves to certain mm-hmm. certain things. I, I mean, but as the tribunal, you kind of have to be a little bit more formalistic in your application, I think. Um, well, and I, I just assume that, I mean, when you read in, in what you mentioned, uh, Jewel, is that in commercial arbitration, that I, it doesn't seem to me that there is, under you know the ICC rules or any other rules, actually a, an, impl- you know, an express confidentiality regime so unless the parties have provided for confidentiality then the default rule would be that it would be public yeah 
right? I mean, you also you have to go back to the right. also to the Lex Loki arbitrary and yeah. the place of arbitration. Yeah. Uh, in addition to the rules, because I think you're right. That yes, yeah, many rules of, do of not course, continue. of course, you would look at the rules of the seat. But I think there's been a lot of debate on this because people, you know, initially, I don't know if I could say initially or originally, but there's there's belief that arbitration is confidential, it's behind doors, closed doors, you know, everyone says that, and you would go to arbitration because it is confidential. Right. And in fact, this is not... No, I don't think as a general proposition, I think that's, I agree with you. I don't think that's necessarily true because it is if the parties want it to be. The parties have the the power to turn it into that if they want to. And so in investment arbitration context where states are involved, you can't, you're flipping the thing over in a way by what you're saying, Brian, because you're saying that if you haven't agreed to... you know, confidentiality. Then it would be implied that, right, yeah. I see what you're saying. Yeah, so, you know, why would it be different? Is it because what Julie's saying is that because of the sovereignty of the states? Is that what you're saying? I think so. I haven't thought this through, but I have a sense that one should be more careful hmm. while interpreting state consent in treaties compared to consenting contracts. And that, that includes, in the latter case, I think states that have entered into contracts in their private commercial capacity, because yeah. then they're just like any other entity yeah. that enters into a private yeah. agreement. Mm-hmm. Treaties are different, and yeah. they are just seceding state sovereignty. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I, I'm sure that a better public international lawyer would have like a, a good, a good provision to, to refer to yeah. right up. But I just my, my sense is that it's yeah. different. Because it is treaties. Yeah, it seems more shocking, doesn't it? Right. Yeah. The the consent of the states is, it seems much more shocking, and and just to link it with the because I was just curious to see because there's been a lot of discussion on this Mauritius Convention, right, on transparency. Yeah. And what states have actually signed it and have ratified it, just looking it through, how many states have ratified it? Cameroon, Canada, Gambia, Mauritius, and Switzerland. That that's it, it. right <laughs> <laughs> so there was so much talk about it and so it just brings it back to you know there's so much talk about states wanting transparency in the if you go to the ancestral working group sessions they're all about oh my gosh you know it has to be out there yeah in the abstract <laughs> when they're talking about it like without right. a specific yeah. case in mind but then obviously this is yeah. this is the state arguing that they shouldn't disclose this and it's the the arbitrator appointed by the state is also yeah. the one who's dissenting here yes 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 well, I wonder what the motivations were of Serbia to prevent the disclosure of it if it I mean if there has to be some tie to releasing a state secret or releasing yeah. some sort of like What's the real motivation? It can't just be that they like. No, I think because there were two steps. I think at the first step they argued generally that they wanted the proceedings to be confidential, and I haven't read enough uh, in the background of the case to know why they thought so. But at the second stage they argued specifically that okay, now we have transparency, but there are exceptions in the transparency rules, and they are for certain kinds of documents, and we have those kinds of documents here that we right. needed. We need to redact them basically, or mm-hmm. we should withdraw them from the, the transparency rules. Uh, so I don't know. I should have maybe read the case a bit more carefully. But, but, to, but to reject, they rejected redaction as well. Yeah. Which, I mean, usually redaction is your safeguard of like, okay, yeah. well, we'll provide them redacted. Um, clearly it opens it up to some sort of like litigation tactics on what's redacted and what's yeah. not. But, but I think that is you know, a reasonable compromise. So I'm, I'm, inter- I'm interested to read Yeah, if there's any it. other specific reason for that specific treaty, why it should be. Yeah. Um, but then again, you didn't, they would just stick to the text of the treaty and say, we just agree to, you know, it being uh, public. 
and why do we need to justify something else you know <laughs> yeah. that's again it's like adding a burden on them yeah so maybe i think it. this will be like something we will be teaching for a while in this case it's good uh, especially if you're more uh, diligent than we've been and you read the whole thing through and you have all the facts in place you can probably talk yeah, about it yeah we don't read anything guys <laughs> to us. but it's so it's always so helpful when you have a majority and then you have a dissenting mm. opinion and you can read them next to each other and compare uh, mm. the, the different re- lines of reasoning but I assume we will have reason to return to not just this case but this general question yeah. going forward because also as you say Sadia this is something that is now being discussed in the Oncetral Working Group so this is a very good illustration of the general feelings about is the general feelings of state in the working group that they want transparency within the proceedings so they don't want the proceedings transparent to the public but they want I mean, what? Because you're saying the states want more transparency. Well, in fact, you know, to be to be completely, you know, honest, we haven't spoken about that specific topic. I don't think. No, in not the last lately. Sessions. It yeah. was mentioned initially because yeah. it was partly covered by the the previous working group, which right. ended up yeah. with the Mauritius Convention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's like a more of a general backdrop as well, and the whole talk about a standing body. I think the assumption is that that standing body will not be doing things confidentially at mm-hmm. all. Like whatever comes out mm-hmm. will be like any other international court. Everything will be published. Yeah. That's basically, I think, beyond discussion at this point, at least right. for those who, who want that kind of uh, a body mm-hmm. established. Yeah. But I think initially, you're, you're right in pointing that out, Brian, is that it was more the movement of backlash against investment arbitration from the NGOs and so non-states right. that were like, oh, we need to know what's going on, you know, and it, there needs to be more transparency in the system and it needs to be more public, et cetera. And there was, that was kind of what fueled this discussion of the, I think, the transparency convention. Right. Um, well, that's where I see a difference, because if you say transparency from that type of motivation, that is basically saying, like, tell us how you appoint your arbitrators, tell us how this mm. works, tell us how the, you know, show us the awards. But then to, like, take that a step further and say transparency is now this movement to allow us to get documents that we mm. need. I think it takes it a, a step further. I don't know if it's linked or... Yeah, there's something in that in that case, if I, I, if I remember correctly, they said that they had to... The parties both had to bear the burden um, the, of, of paying if any a third party would request documents as oh, well. Oh, that is so that is too. yeah, that is pretty. I mean, it's pretty heavy burden on the parties, right? It's yeah. like any. I don't know if it's uh, Tom, Dick, and Harry. <laughs> you know, can can. Um, can make that request, but if you're asking for the document, then you have to provide. I I realize that I used to work as a reporter and that I'm Swedish. Generally speaking, I think states <laughs> should do that anyway, as a starting point. They're the state. It's it's in the interest of transparency mm-hmm. because they're like, you know, they're working for the executive power. They are accountable to the to the people. Mm-hmm. Although it's of course different if it's like some random podcast dude from Sweden who wants to. <laughs> get access to a bunch of underlying documents who's not a citizen of the country but no. but still I don't I don't think that's unreasonable to ask of states with like of course some safety involves for mm-hmm. for uh, reasonableness and so on I just want to mention though um, Rishi as always uh, did a good job researching this and he also added that like a general development and transparency when we're talking about this there's been a bunch of exit cases that have been live streamed not just the Vattenfall case where Brian Cottig was seen running up and down with water. <laughs> Drawing objections. <laughs> oh, this is like seven or eight or nine cases that have been live streamed and, and uh, video streaming is more common now. And I get emails all the time like, come to the exit secretariat yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. and watch. The NAFTA, some of the NAFTA cases were also live streamed. Yeah. So 
So, yeah, and it's yeah. in many treaties now too. So I think we'll see more and more yeah. of this, which is of course where this whole decision yeah. fits in. Like it's part of a general yeah. tendency. But as we've already discussed, that's not the same thing as a legal consideration. It's a policy. Thing. It's right. just a funny story. I don't remember which case it was. I wonder if it was was the Mikula case also live stream or no? Uh, it may have. I wasn't I, oh, okay. at oh, the sorry. firm at the time of it. Oh, I, I just had a discussion with someone who, who mentioned that yes, it was live stream, and if you, if you clicked on, you could see the number of views of how many people had All right, yeah. also No, it was in the UK courts. That was live stream. Oh, that was live stream. It, oh. Yeah, but uh, the Mikula enforcement in UK courts. Oh, right, okay. But I, I think that the number of viewers was just very, very oh, little. Yeah. So like you know, if you and if you YouTube. count, yeah, and he was like, I it was you know probably two hundred times. He was like, I myself watch myself <laughs> at least hundred times, yeah. you know, showing off to my family and parents and stuff. So that just kind of <laughs> tells you how many people actually watch it. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Is it time for force majeure? Yes. yes. Or force majeure. Yeah. Will you pronounce it in French or yeah. in English? Oh, I don't know. Should I? Oh. <laughs> we'll see what oh, happens. Cliffhanger. <laughs> Majeure. So why are we talking about force majeure now? Um, like we introduced at the beginning of the segment, it is um, linked to the coronavirus uh, that has been in the news for everyone. Um, COVID-19. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh. I'm not pronouncing it the right way. No, no, no. It is. Oh, it's like That's the official... Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Official. Because apparently coronavirus is like a generic. There are many coronaviruses. I just got a news flash from like some, I don't know, WHO now officially calls it and urges people to call it COVID-19. Thank you. COVID-19. It's an acronym for something. <laughs> yeah, so we are the masters of acronyms. So here's another one that we'll add to our book, COVID-19. And um, of course, it's the virus that started in China and has been spreading um, around the world, uh, including in London. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And I'm laughing, but it's not really yeah. funny, actually. Yeah. Um, anxious laugh. Yeah, it's a, it's an anxious laugh. On the 30th of January 2020, the World Health Organization declared uh, COVID-19 a public health emergency of international concern which is referred to as a P-H-E-I-C, apparently. Oh. That is also a thing. Um, in response to uh, the spread of the virus, and this is just the sixth time that the, the, the w, uh, WHO has made this declaration since adopting the procedure in 2005. So it's a big deal. And, of course, the spread of the virus, we've seen... The implications, I mean, we were just getting emails from our Chinese office that the office was closed until, because it coincided with the new year, new, uh, Chinese New Year. Exactly. When it happened, so they extended the closure to, um, I think it was uh, 2nd of February, which is not usual. Um, and, you know, I don't know for you guys, but we've been getting a lot of out-of-office messages. I've have a case uh, involving Chinese clients, everything has been delayed, there's been a lot of issues on that, but more importantly also, um, and, and there's been a lot of discussion uh, in the legal community um, about the implications that it has on the performance of contracts. And of course, it's multiple sectors are involved. I mean, the oil and gas business has been impacted severely, the construction sector has been impacted, uh, the manufacturing sector has been in fact, impacted, I mean, name it. What is not 
made in China. Yeah, exactly. Really. <laughs> and so we are realizing the impact of all of this. And depending on where your client stands in this chain of um, you know incidents uh, with respect to the virus. Um, I'm sure that people are thinking of whether or not you know they can use the contract and their force majeure. Now I'm going to say it in French. <laughs> uh, you know, clause. And why am I saying it in French? Not because I am fro French, <laughs> unlike some people would think, because of the last segment. Uh, but just simply because force majeure is a, a civilian concept, as a, a French law, uh, and also just civil law concept. And we are talking about China, which the PRC law is. A civil law jurisdiction. There you go. Um, so it is very much relevant, um, and I know that we are here in London, and uh, this is the core difference with the English law system. So depending on your contract, whether the, of course, the governing law here would be extremely important, um, because if your contract is based on PRC law or a civil law jurisdiction then not only are you governed by you know the definition of force majeure if there is one in the contract but also more generally speaking about the definition the statutory uh, definition in the law so i'm just going to cite here article 117 of the prc contract law because i think it is relevant i'm not a chinese lawyer um, but it's interesting to see the definition of force majeure as an objective event or circumstance which is unforeseeable unavoidable and unsurmountable so these are the three criteria um, and uh, you know query as to whether that includes impossibility of performance or not I'm not this you know Chinese lawyer specialist um, but I think it will be very much uh, relevant for the conversation here um, under English law and under common law, more generally speaking, there is no such concept of force majeure under um, the relevant you know, law and legislation, but then that's when your contract becomes extremely, extremely important. Um, so without going in too much detail, I think there are certain things that must be thought about. Number one, what does your contract say? <laughs> yes. <laughs> what is, because we talk about force majeure, but every single contract defines it differently. And there's a huge list or not of exclusions depending on who drafted the contract and who had the leverage of negotiating that, right? Absolutely. So does it include, um, you know, does it, does it use the word epidemic, epidemic, uh, pandemic, you know, what does that um, include as well in terms of the definition or and I just had a call yesterday actually with one of the clients who was telling me that in his contract force measure excluded epidemics eh, epidemics so you know that's also very expressly strange. in language of yeah. the contract huh. very strange and there's also as as the atheist on the podcast <laughs> I have to take issue with this other thing called act of God which you oh, see yes, sometimes which say. is not in the Chinese definition <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, so that's often in the New York ones yeah yeah, the American yeah and that is as far yeah. as I understand that's like natural disasters things exactly. that aren't man-made whereas force majeure yeah, typically it's like man-made things such as an epidemic I guess yeah. I, I'm looking at you I now mean does again. it doesn't yeah, yeah. come from um, God this virus we don't know right, it, right? It started well, I know, off, but, you know right. it doesn't it doesn't it was just some uh, some really cool kids that went to eat some bat you know yeah. after the drinks or something right delicacy. is that what I have yeah delicacy um, yes act of God usually includes uh, earthquakes volcanic eruptions landslides you know stuff like that um, so you're right um, and then 
the question is whether or not it would include so epidemic plagues. You know, this is the language usually used also in force majeure. Um, <clears throat> Now another thing is the scope, right? Because as I hinted earlier, is okay. So does it fall under the definition? But then, usually there's a criteria of is it going to be impossible performance or non-performance? Not the same thing. I mean, if you are just you were able to perform during just the two or three weeks or whatever this timeline is going to be of non-performance, is not the same thing as oh I just couldn't perform at all. Right, um, so that would also be something that parties need to look into the definition, um, the scope of, of non-performance, and also the impact it has on your performance. Now, of course, there's an additional thinking here in terms of construction contract. The delay it has caused is, of course, right. you know, significant, and whether you can, if it's a, if it falls under force majeure clause, and you know, you've got this whole mechanism under the contract that starts get triggered. It's also, um, I guess, typically notification requirement. Yeah, 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 no, 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 sorry, that's exactly, uh, and that's one of the key points as well, is the consequence, so if you've ticked the box of, okay, force measure is in there, you've, you've looked at the scope, then what happens? And uh, a condition precedent usually under certain, you know, not usually, it's most of the time actually, to trigger that clause is you have to send a notification. Yeah. And then you have to look at the notice requirements. Is it going to be in written? You know, does email constitute notice or not? I mean, there's a whole bunch of things on, you know, timely notices, where you have to send it, how you have to send them. Um, and it sounds a lot of very formalistic and boring, but this is what law is all about. So, <laughs> formalistic and boring. You know, no, this yeah. is, you could have you know months and months of procedures on whether or not notice was made or not. I yeah. had an arbitration where actually there was yeah, a modification that, on that yeah. question <laughs> <laughs> because whether or not there was a notice, then you know you couldn't actually trigger the relevant clause. So uh, that's uh, another thing. I you were going to say something. I was too. just thinking out loud on a related question on when it depends on the contractual language, of course, but when when you have to notify the party that you're relying on a force majeure. In this particular case, from what we know about the development of the epidemic or the, or the virus, it, you know, it took a, a long time until it became publicly known that mm -hmm. it was an issue because of the, mm -hmm. the right. dealings, it seemed, of the Chinese government. Right, right. So w when, when do you need, when do you have to, to notify? Like, is it when you, when you knew, when you should have known? And in this particular case, when should you have known when, like, an authoritarian government kept it under wraps for a long time and then it just exploded out of nowhere and it was obviously an issue. You don't have a lot of time as the party trying to notify because you don't know anything until it's like too late. Because it's unforeseeable. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, in this case also it's very interesting. Um, I saw that the Chinese Council for the Promotion of International Trade, so CCPIT, is offering force measure shield certificates to companies based in China. Uh, they are seeking to rely on provisions um, enabling them to suspend performance of their contractual obligations. So basically, the government is giving them, you know, the Joker card. Yeah, yeah. As right. Force majeure. Yeah, because the and government is the only one who can who yeah. really, could really have foreseen at, at an earlier juncture at yes. least, that this would be. But if you think about it, they're giving that to Chinese companies, which are almost all. Uh, all of them um, own 100% by the government. Yeah. So they're state-owned companies. So they're kind of, you know, having the government vouch, voucher to excuse performance, but they're themselves owned by the government. So, I mean, there's a question as whether or not this is sufficient. To right. 
you know, qualifies force majeure. Uh, but yes, you're right. When the the time of the whole thing is very important. Um, also, the burden of proof is going to be relevant. So again, the governing law here will be important um, on you know who is the party who needs to. Um, usually, I mean, for example, under English law, the burden of proof is on the party seeking to rely on the force majeure provisions to prove that an event gave rise to a permissible delay. Um, so that's also something that is important to look at. And um, and also, I mean, you know, there's a lot of other considerations. Uh, but one of the things that I think is important to mention is the consequence of all of that. So once you serve notice of force majeure, what are the consequences? Again, it depends on the contract, but it shouldn't necessarily be assuming that the contract will be terminating or there'll be an exit or handover, you know, of that contract. It can't just be that you are entitled to suspend your obligations and avoid liability for any failure to perform or delay under um, this contract, which is usually the case under big construction contracts, you know? So the penalty, you know, clause would not trigger, something like that. Or um, there could be uh, also some obligations of mitigations uh, of damages that are triggered through that force measure clause that you should look into. And then, of course, like I mentioned, the most drastic consequence is termination um, or exit from the project. Um, and this under um, is also governed by PRC law. There's like a statutory termination clause. So, you know, even if it's not provided in your contract, then maybe statutory, you can just get out of the contract. Um, now, if you, if force measure is not a possibility, then what else do you have? I mean, what if your contract is subject to common law and, or what else, it has a force majeure clause, but it just is drafted in such a way that the coronavirus wouldn't fall under it, or sorry, sorry COVID-19 would not fall under it. Sorry, Jewel is like looking at me weirdly. Um, so Welcome I have to, to correct myself. Yeah, it's like, you know, hitting me under the table. Like, mistakes, gosh. Um, so, Joel, you tell me then. Oh, <laughs> what, under the common law? Well, I know he's not the person I should look to to the comment. The professor has become the student. But do you know of any other, um, you know, force majeure-like uh, provisions mm. or excuses of performance? Either? No, I already pulled my act of God one. I think that might be <laughs> the only one well, I can come up with. Well, um, actually, I'm just going to mention that. I'm not going to go into too much detail. First, frustration. Mm. Um, is a concept under you That's know common, common law. law one. Yeah, exactly. Also, po impossibility as well. Impossibility. But, which is interesting. With sorry, you can finish your no, list. No, no, go ahead. Then, go ahead. But it, with coronavirus, because if you think about like how it affects it, mm -hmm. um, you basically saying that you're in one scenario, the personnel cannot come to work to perform because they are all sick, mm -hmm. basically. So then you really get into that mitigation and also that the to discuss if you're discussing impossibility of performance or frustration. Frustration usually goes to the purpose of the contract yes. being frustrated, which I don't know if that would be the case here. But under impossibility, is the contract impossible of being performed because your personnel is sick? Um, could you find replacement personnel? Can everyone wear masks? Yes, like exactly. how can that be? Yeah. really invoked on for the coronavirus yeah i mean like for example you know to take a concrete example i think i got this 
alert on my phone for some reason from um, I think it was New York Times or something that Apple announced that it would be late in supplying some iPhones because right. of the virus. Right. Okay. Right, right, right. And so you're like, well, okay, you be late, but you can still supply them. And also, do you really have to build them in China? You know, right. is the question, right? I mean, yeah. it's like the sanctions thing, right? So you've got sanctions with Iran and, and Russia. And so you can't, you know, you would, you would think about it as, is it impossible? Or is it just going to create a difficulty <laughs> for you? Because then you'll be sanctioned. Right, right. By a third party who nobody cares about, which is the U.S., you know? Like, mm-hmm. that's what they would argue. So it's the same. I mean, it's not the same at all, of course, here. There's health implications. But uh, what I mean is... Um, you're right. This is this is the thing, and also, you were absolutely right for frustration. Um, it, the the event must be unforeseen, uh, have occurred without the fault of either party, so exterior, uh, and it must either make the contract's performance impossible or it must destroy the fundamental purpose of the contract. And so this is going to be the key question here, right. is if you know it's just the the contract itself, the object has been frustrated, which I doubt is you know or it's like if you have a, a, a contract to supply like I don't know yeah. t- t- tourism travel to China between January and March 2020 right right yeah like no point in upholding the contract because right nothing right. will ever be frustrated yeah. yeah 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 but then you know if you have a long-term agreement of uh, supplying you know um, like those LNG contracts or something like does it really make it that's liquefied natural gas yeah yeah well done well done yes exactly it is it is it there's also hardship clauses often uh, in common law um a contract or not actually you could just have a hardship clause um and um and then if you could trigger that hardship clause again there's no notice requirements or not and then the question of whether you could use it also to maybe renegotiate some terms of the contracts that's also one of the things that has been discussed uh, with the virus, if it could open, um, you know, the door for renegotiations uh, and etc. And there's a lot of, of course, consideration for um, other than in arbitration and disputes. <laughs> there are considerations for, you know, we don't really deals, and we, we don't really about care about those. <laughs> you know, how are you going to bring back your employees from China, etc. <laughs> And uh, how it disrupts the whole um, performance because it also has an indirect effect, right, on your performance on other contracts, I imagine. Of course. So the causality link is also going to be extremely important, I think, because for the immediate contracts, I think it seems pretty easy what the framework are going to, I mean, you're just going to look at the contract, the applicable law, but what happened, I mean, I think everyone's activity has been affected in some way, right, because of this, because if there's some delay in one project and it has a effect on all mm. the other projects that you're involved in. Um, so, you know, this is it, guys. I mean, I think there's a lot to be written on this. If I may give a shout out, because I think it's very important. Um, I saw that and I thought it was very interesting. I saw that Delos Arbitration actually uh, created this link with um, the, a, a list of articles from diverse law firms, and it is unsponsored. It's just what they thought were relevant articles that have been written and, and you know Joel has you've seen the Swedish articles I've seen the <laughs> French ones and there's been you know of course Chinese perspective and all the big law from everyone has written about it from different perspectives um, and they've kind of tried to combine all of this um, on their website 
We'll link the, that in the bio we'll, for this we'll episode because yeah. that's a good I that source. Was very if there are still arbitration lawyers out there who have a lot of time, might be a, a worthwhile investment to read up on force majeure because there will very soon be a lot of arbitrations when this yeah, is on, on, I think on the this table. Is, this is the this is the time to to reopen the debate on uh, force majeure. Oh. <laughs> I'll stop it here. <laughs> <laughs> Open plan or not to open plan? That is the question of the happy fun time topic and one that I will be leading this very substantive topic of I open plan. I was hoping we could open some champagne, yeah, which was promised I by know. our French hostess. We got some snacks instead. Force my shot. So we, there was a push a couple of years ago about uh, moving um, firms to open plan. And I know of two just off the top of my head uh, here in London that did that, they moved offices and they moved to the open plan um, aspect. And some of the motivations for open plan are that you contribute to a more collaborative environment, there's more you know, openness, and especially with our profession where it's very much individualistic and you're sitting with a draft for weeks on end, um, it's just promoting more of a healthy lifestyle. And I think that's what it was, it was like a healthy workplace, uh, mindfulness type of push. And so what they did is they put everyone into the center of the room, uh, broke down all the walls, and everyone is now um, discussing uh, their cases openly with their colleagues across the table. While saving a lot of money in rent, because you only need like half the space if you put exactly. people without walls in one big place. I think that was the reason. <laughs> was that the reason? Under, the, under the umbrella of mindfulness, it was, yeah. we don't want to pay for anything. Of course, that. what do you think? <laughs> Uh, I, well, okay, so the question <laughs> then becomes, and then on the other side, and this is where I inevitably sit, which is the fact that um, we, our profession is very much an individualized profession where we are sitting with drafts, we're on the phone, we're in conference calls, mm -hmm. we aren't discussing things very frequently uh, across a table in a more like strategy type of environment that happens about maybe three, four times per case of multiple years, which is you're sitting with your expert and having like a strategy discussion with the team, or you have co-counsel and you're finally meeting before a submission. Um, those are the really the only times I can think of where I'm sitting down across the table and like, you know, over Chinese food discussing like how we're gonna really like attack this problem. So is it really necessary to have an open plan? Um, Sadia, since you have been working in the firm environment for a long time, how often are you, you know, free word association brainstorming with your peers? Much more than I used to really? a couple of years ago. Yes. Oh, here and we I go. think this is the thing. It's depending on your level of seniority, it changes. Your job changes, right? So mm -hmm. you will focus more on strategy and on being on calls and on, you know, being in and out of people's offices to brainstorm ideas about how you're gonna not research but like you know bring in the strategy much much more than i used to before where i would spend a lot of time like you mentioned locked in my room and and not speak to anyone and just research and get on with the draft right, right, right. um and so that's why i think it can work for i know it sounds very bad to kind of make a difference in the hierarchy because it sounds like oh the more junior you are then you should suffer and, <laughs> and, and be open plan and partners or, you know, senior 
members should should have their own office because they need more privacy. Um, but I do I do think it becomes more difficult um, the more senior you get um, if you are you know maybe to focus more if you're in different calls or different strategy thing. But at the same time, I do think it it is not a good thing to be in a closed environment all the time because then it doesn't encourage you to to speak to to you know to your colleagues and brainstorm. Yeah, I, I actually agree. There is a lot of like closed door conversations mm-hmm. that probably don't need to be closed door and it really alienates people as far as like a you know a yeah. motivating tactic and delegation is quite I shared a room with a junior and just like the mere hey can you do this yeah it's exactly. so much easier yeah. sending an email sending instructions and stuff like that and it's also not only is it easier but you will think about it because they're there right so if for example either of you were in the same office and we were sharing something I would you know you're writing something it's like when you're in a library sharing you know space with other people you're like hey what do you think about this or what do you think right. about that right. and I actually do that much much more often uh, if people are in close proximity with me in fact tell you what my the the boss I'm working for right now is the reason why I rejoined the firm and I'm working with him is because I initially started working when I was a GED in Paris he his office was right across my office right so originally I wasn't like supposed to work with him I was supposed to work with different partners but just because he was there I would hear everything he was saying and I was there he was like hey Sadio do you want to look at this and that and that and I it just kind of became this thing and uh and and you know again it speaks volumes as to how the level of geographic proximity Mm. kind of shapes the people you work with and the way you work right yeah no Um, definitely but that kind of connection happened because you were not in an open space I was not in an open space but my office was across the hall from him right but do you think you would have been or you would have been in your mutual exchanges as forthright if you had been close to each other but with four other people or 14 other people that's a very good point I think if you're in an open space your kind of mind kind of shuts off right you create this invisible wall Um, and it's it's interesting if you see those open space areas where they're supposed to be transparent like yeah it's walls. like noise cancelling headphones yeah. on, people, on have their, on the people have their noise cancelling yeah headphones they also cover up their space you know with pictures and stuff to make it like more theirs yeah so you're right i think it does is is i don't know but it's you don't work in open plan at all i think my record is clear that i prefer working in solitude <laughs> historically <laughs> the academic comes through yeah exactly but uh but now no now i share an office uh when i'm working in new york i share an office and here in london it's more like a, a barrister's setup mm-hmm. so it's it's smaller than the average law firm of course and each barrister or arbitrator in our case they have their own office but it's like in an open kind of way, mm-hmm. no no closed doors, so you're still like walking around a little bit, and a lot of common areas in this small office space, you're still meeting and interacting with people, running into them, and it's so easy to do what you did with your boss in Paris, just like looking into each other's rooms as you're walking by yeah, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, so it's not closed, but it's not, you know, looking at the floor plan, it's not an open right. floor by any measure. But do you think you would it would serve you well if you were sitting in the chambers and your arbitrator was there to be next to them and like kind of have that open dialogue and be like to more riff with them while you're like oh wait I'm stuck on this wait what hey what did you think about this would you yeah I, yeah, I will say when I in New York when I'm when I've been there 
Um, I've had that kind of exchanges with the the people in the in the office, especially when there's just two and you're in yeah. um, in one area next to each other. It's so easy, and I've had a lot of interesting things that aren't strictly speaking, you know, relevant or pertaining to what you're drafting currently. But it's someone needs help with something, or just bouncing ideas back and forth. Yeah, that has worked. But I I think that works if you're next to each other in a smaller space, as yeah. opposed to next to each other in a larger space. Yeah, yeah, that's my sense. Because otherwise, you know, a bunch of people who have no interest in, or maybe for confidentiality reason, maybe even shouldn't be listening mm-hmm. to what you're saying, they are there, and that kind of hinders the conversation. Yeah, I didn't even think about that because we have a in one of our cases a Chinese wall for one of the partners that would almost be impossible to be able to do that. Um, I, I mean, maybe it is beneficial for the senior people to have open space because they're going to be the in charge of how the conversation spreads out. I don't know. I. I Maybe I guess I guess both could benefit from that because the junior could then pipe up and be like, "Oh, wait, I'm going down this rabbit hole. Like, please redirect me." Um, and the senior arbitrator can say, "Wait, do this, do this. Get off this case. Get on back on yeah. this. This person could do this. It's a little bit more of like a vibrant uh, work environment." But the ex- but how often does that actually happen? <laughs> that like gem of a moment where you're like. I need a case on this. I mean, it doesn't yeah. really happen that often in my yeah. experience. But. I think it, you, I think if, if it's it, not necessarily open space, but having an environment where people are close by to each other. And it could yeah. mean, you know, everybody has their own office, but they're not, you know, maybe a, a big discussion at some point was whether or not you have transparent doors or not, right? And right. now every single, I mean, looking at this law firm, the, the doors are transparent and there's like a little bit of intimacy like in the middle like you've got this gray zone so yeah, you yeah, can yeah. see your feet and it's like in the restrooms in the US you can see yeah. people's feet <laughs> <laughs> don't yeah. say so you know they're there but yeah. um, um, I, I just um, it, it, it this and versus a, a, an office where you've got wooden doors and you close them and it really feels like a closed apartment or your own space right um I think that has a definite impact, uh, but I also, um, in, in full disclosure, I have never worked in open space. I'm a really <laughs> bad person to speak about that, but it would drive me nuts uh, to, to have open plan. Yeah, I think really, so. after I, all of this. Yeah, I think it's just a question of because I haven't done it, and I just I. I yeah, I, think I have it's, it's actually in an to, early life. And do you think it would? Uh... No, it, 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 that early life didn't suit me, which is why I abandoned it and became a lawyer. But I worked <laughs> for, for, in advertising when I was an intern, right. okay. I was super junior, and I think that is sort of the environment where this originated. This was I don't know, fourteen years ago or yeah. something when this started. That was the environment I think that mm-hmm. when people started figuring that, figuring that out, and that seemed to work for everyone else because that's mm. a much more just like bouncing ideas, free flow mm. of creative mm-hmm. energy mm-hmm. kind of environment, yeah. which made me just uncomfortable because I felt observed and I didn't want to partake in and all of these free exchanges <laughs> of yeah. ideas. Uh, and lawyers, I don't know, we would like to think that we are doing something creative because we're solving problems and we have to yeah. think about things. But I mean, mostly we're not. Like mm-hmm. that happens, of course, but yeah. you have a strategy and you have like X amount of routes you can go, and then it's just like putting it in a document. That's the actual work, and that's what. But you want to have your privacy and and silence. To I think do. you need to have. So I I have there are different times of days, and I'm different kind of lawyer in different times of days, right? I think that when you're talking to people, and I do, there have been a lot of times where I had these eureka moments just by speaking to people, right? Because you say it out loud, and it's different than writing it down. 
and you realize that it doesn't work, or you realize yeah. that it works. What right? kind of law student were you on that topic? Because that's like, what, like how did you group, study or, in yeah. law? Yeah, exactly. Oh. Did you did you do this what you just described in order to understand things when you were studying, or did you prefer to sit yeah, in the library actually. eighteen hours a day on your own, just like cramming? Well, um, if there was something I didn't understand or I needed, like, you know, we needed to find an innovative, like you say, create an idea or an important, um, you know, some kind of new element that, that wasn't in the books, then yes, that would help me. But then you were absolutely right. There are moments where you just need to kind of sit down <laughs> and draft or write or read in yeah. silence. And this yeah. is usually I do that at nighttime. Um, when right. the rest of the world is sleeping, uh, so I have no distractions, and this is just a. I feel like it's a different role in itself and a different job. You're just there and you're focusing, and that's it. And I can't have anything. No one docked me or anything. No, I just exactly. need to do my thing, and then you shoot it, and then people read it, and then we talk about it. Mm. But we we as lawyers have to do all of it, and I think you know again to come back to that point. I think there are different times of our lives where. The focus is on some, like, you know, on the early years, you would spend hours and hours, you know, at the time it was in the library, now it's in front of your computer, researching, researching, drafting, taking instructions and just executing, right? Yeah. And that's it. No one wants to talk to you or know what you think. They're yeah. just kind of like, just do it. Yeah. And then the more you have experience and you progress, then you're like, oh, wait, you know, actually that has happened to a case and... You know, I think about that. And that's also a thing that has happened to me multiple times is people who I don't work on in the same team, I find it so interesting to speak to them about what I'm working on because mm -hmm. they give me ideas. Yeah. You know, and if you have an office where, okay, again, discussion of whether open space or not, but please have a space where lawyers can go and get good coffee or something to sit down so they can discuss about like oh my gosh you know i've been spending these hours on this thing i can't find this top you know this this right. solution and then the other person oh i had a similar case and yada 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 that happens a lot of time i mean it has happened for me and i think this is useful yeah i think the difference is if your office is a large group of everyone in the same speciality because yeah. winston is much smaller and our arbitration team is much smaller so the person i was in in england actually joel if someone is a trainee or a junior they usually pair you up with the senior in mm. order to get that, that type of mentorship mm -hmm. um which is helpful if they're on your team but for example the person who was sitting with me was litigation arbitration and they were dealing with a lot of the litigation at the time so every person walking in was just a distraction to me because i wasn't working on any of that so sure this like wonderful um you know narnia place where everyone's working in arbitration <laughs> and you're just like place. talking about arbitration yeah, yeah. Uh, but that doesn't happen in any office that is more of a mixed or has multiple specialities on the same floor in the same time so i think yeah, it, yeah. i agree i mean if you're working at you know wilmer hale or freshfields that would be much easier because the team is so large and you're able yeah, to like yeah, really yeah, bounce yeah. off people across the floor but if you're a sole practitioner and working in a we work or whatever anything else other than what you're working on is a distraction so um, some yeah, people okay. are easily distracted like myself. Yeah, no, that's true. And talking of distractions, and that's also one of the things that I also think, and that's probably more a wellness point, it's very important for people to kind of feel they belong to a firm also, like a it group. It could be isolating, yeah. And, and if, if you are working together, then you know things about like, oh, like the water's not working or, you know, the, you know stuff like yeah. that or just office gossip. 
you know, just know like what is yeah, going yeah, yeah. on. But, <laughs> gossip in arbitration? What? There's no such thing as gossip arbitration review. What are you talking about? Um, <laughs> well, this is a perfect time to take this off air and start our gossip session under behind closed doors. Um, thank you all for listening again. Follow us at the Arb Station. Email us at the Arbitration Station at gmail.com and uh, sign up uh, for the ICC conference. And thank you, Rishi. This ends his tenure, so we bid Thanks, you adieu Rishi. for another great season. You've been great. Thank you, Jan. Yeah. As always. <laughs> thank you, Jan's parents. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>